Welcome to life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility, with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. Today we're here with Dr. Carol Crochet. She's come back to help us understand how the embryo was created in the lab. Hi, and welcome to life, love, insight, fertility, experiences. Today we're going to hear all about how an embryo was created in the lab which is something so many people wonder about. And I am here with Dr. Carol Kirschen. Welcome back. I am so glad that you were able to, or were able to have this piece of the conversation. We're still on Zoom. We're still kind of staying quarantined when we can. Wonderful to be back. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. People reached out to me after our first conversation. So interested in what really goes on in the lab. It's exciting to be able to talk about what you do exactly after the retrieval comes in of an egg or sperm, and if the if the retrieval is coming in from a couple or from a donor in some form. So I'm not sure where to begin, but we kind of talked about the ABCs of creating an embryo. I think it's it's such a good point, and it's such an important question, and it's it's something that I feel strongly as an embryologist, we need to be more transparent parent with our intended parents or our parents about because they do so much work to get up to that point of the egg retrieval. All the stims, the medications, the this, the that, and it's it's so much. And then they go in for the procedure and their precious tissues, their gametes, disappear into the black box of the right? lab. And they have so that much anxiety. So much anxiety, yes. And then they're waiting for the updates as the cycle progresses. It can be very painful for people um, because I have tend to start off. Painful. I have the chills as you say that because from my end, when I'm talking to people, it is so, you know, so anxiety. And it, do we make it to the third day? Do we make it for the fifth day? Yeah. So maybe if we can shed a little light on some of what happens behind closed doors, um, it can be helpful to manage the anxiety during that time. Yes. Um, so let's just start right at the retrieval. Excellent. Usually the patient or the egg donor will come into the surgical room and they might briefly see the embryologist who will be taking the tubes of follicular fluid into the lab. Usually the tube gets passed through a small window. And before the pandemic, um, in a lot of places that I've worked in, a lot of people who I've talked to, we would go in and talk face to face with the person. We would confirm their plan for their cycle and you know how exactly they want their embryos made, whether they're doing PGT testing, if there's more than one sperm source. Um, sometimes you can use a partner and a donor in the same cycle and you just confirm in general the embryology plan with the patient. But now but less of that is happening. Yeah, that's fascinating, honestly, Carol, that that would happen, that you would have a choice of what kind of sperm, do you want to mix the sperm together, and how you want to proceed with that, and whether or not to do the testing, because the testing yeah. takes place in the lab, and people have, have mixed kind of feelings about that depending on the position you go to. Yes, absolutely. And then it can be further complicated by pricing plans and packages, how many embryos to test. And it's it's can be very stressful for the patient. So, but in any case, 
Um, what happens when when the patient goes under the anesthesia is the they'll they'll put the patient to sleep and they'll put this the legs up in the stirrups and the nurses and medical technicians are all working hard to keep the patient's skin draped with surgical drapes and the patient covered every time the body is moved. So one of the, the utmost you know, important things for us all around the patient is to preserve their dignity after they get put under anesthesia and to really respect the human body. And um, you know, we, we dim the lights. We don't like a lot of bright lights shining on you know, bare skin and we'll drape every basically inch of exposed skin with surgical drapes and sterile towels. And we all work very carefully to make sure that, you know, everyone is sort of at the flank or the head of the patient, except for who needs to be directly in front of, of the, um, where the, um, where the ultrasound guided transvaginal OSA aspiration will happen. So most physicians will use Wanda. And if you're in the, if you've gone through a cycle before, you know exactly who Wanda is. Wanda is the ultrasound probe. And the ultrasound probe, um, they do insert vaginally. And then there's a guide on the front of the probe where the needle actually goes through. So it will be directed you know, directly through the muscular wall of the vagina into the follicle. And a technique that I've seen work really well is when the physician makes one puncture through the wall of the vagina, but they can reach multiple follicles through that site. So sometimes, you know, if a retrieval is very difficult, one of the things that can be difficult is if the ovary inside the body is behind the uterus or um, if the walls of the abdomen are very uh, you know, resistant to the, the ultrasound if they're using a, a abdominal ultrasound. Um, so it's on our end, the embryologist's end, what I tend to see is is either tubes that are very clear with follicular fluid, very little blood, or sometimes they have much more blood in the tubes of fluid. And this all goes in to help with the recovery of the patient afterwards. You know, I can imagine that less puncture sites means a quicker recovery ultimately. Yeah. But, but what happens is there's this long needle and they insert it into each follicle guided by the ultrasound and they, they suck all the follicular fluid out and that follicular fluid will contain an egg. And what, what we tend to think is that if you have any follicles over 14 millimeters, those are the ones that are most likely to contain a mature egg. Okay. And so, what happens if they're under? Usually, so there's three different stages of maturity of eggs. Um, very immature, which is called a GB. Uh, moderately immature, which is called an M1. And then the most mature type, which is the type we can do the injection on, the uh, ICSI injection on, or the... Um, conventional fertilization, but most people use ICSI nowadays, and we can talk a little bit about why that is. Um, but the most mature eggs are the only ones that can be fertilized. Okay. So we, so, so this is kind of the first step where patients tend to lose eggs. The doctor might tell them that yes. you have 20 follicles, but then you only have 10 mature eggs because there was a certain number that were over 14 millimeters. 
Yes, and I think if you get 10 out of 20, that's really wonderful statistic. Yeah, and, and you know, even, even more than that, I tend to say I think about 80% usually of the follicles contain a mature egg. That's really interesting because I don't, I haven't heard that before. I usually hear that much less, um, especially as women get a little bit older. So I'm really happy to hear that number. Yes, the eggs are surrounded by cells. During conventional IVF, um, that's where you simply combine the eggs and the sperm in a dish. You don't get to grade the eggs on their quality or look at the maturity because they stay within those cells. Okay. So this is one of the reasons why I don't like to do conventional IVF. I prefer to do ICSI. ICSI is intracytoplasmic sperm injection where we take a, uh, we choose the sperm cell and we inject it directly into the egg. ICSI was developed in the 90s basically to overcome a lot of problems with male infertility, but it can actually overcome a whole lot of different problems. One of the biggest nightmares that we used to have would be when we would go in the next day after a conventional IVF and see a failed fertilization because the sperm could not get through the cells surrounding the egg or penetrate the oocyte when it got through those cells. Or for whatever reason, the, the, you know, the sperm did get to the egg, but the process of fertilization just didn't happen. When we use ICSI, we see that much less. Yeah, it makes sense now because you're choosing probably the strongest sperm or the, the best graded sperm to put in to the egg. We use a very high-powered microscope to look at the sperm, and it can be hard because they're swimming and moving, and you want the ones that are going the fastest. Uh -huh. So they're actually, even with a very high-powered microscope, they're very difficult to see. You can mostly see the head and the, the mid-piece, um, but the and, and you're trying to see the tail as best you can, but the tails are moving back and forth. How do you catch the fastest ones? So we actually put them into um, a very thick, viscous solution that slows them down. Okay. And so that slows all of them down equally, but without that solution, we would never be able to catch them. I and mean, they are really, really quick. Uh-huh. And... Um, you on your toes, for sure. Yeah. Yes. And especially, you know, w when we do our process of uh, washing the sperm, we are actually taking out, there's in, in a normal um, ejaculate, there are a lot of sperm that are not modal. There are a lot of sperm that are very abnormal. In any typical ejaculate, that's the case. So we always do a process of purification first. So the sample that we use for ICSI will actually contain the most highly purified most modal sperm of the whole sample. So, so after then, you catch them, then you put them into the solution? So we put them into the solution first, and then we catch them. We use a needle, basically, to slash the tail. That immobilizes the sperm, and then we pick it up by the tail and inject it into the egg. Wow, okay. Sounds exciting. Technically, it's microsurgery because it's doing yeah. surgery on a single cell. And then a sperm and an egg together doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to fertilize. So we, so when you put the sperm and the egg together, that's called insemination. But the next day, and, and the day of the egg retrieval, by the way, is day zero. The next day, when we look for fertilization, that is day one of embryo development. 
And when we look for fertilization, we're looking for the two different signs of fertilization. We want to see two nuclei inside of the egg cell, one from the sperm and one from the egg. The nuclei are what contain all the chromosomes. So you want half to come from the mother or the egg and half to come from the father or the sperm. And um, it's kind of an exciting moment for embryologists because you this is the last time that your embryo will have two separate genomes inside the cell. The very next step after that is those genomes come together in one nucleus and your embryo has its whole own genome. Wow. You know, the way you describe it, it's such an exciting thing to be part of. It is so exciting. And it's even more exciting when those fertilized eggs go on to start dividing. Yes. Yes, I agree. So, you, so on the first day, we look for the signs of fertilization. And then we usually let the embryos just sit for the second day. We don't disturb them. We go back and check on them the third day. And on the third day, we want to see them be between four and eight cells. So one cell should turn into two cells. And then each of those cells will divide. So two should go to four and four should go to eight. Right. That day when you know how many are dividing and you know how many cells they have and what the quality looks like, you can kind of have an idea of how many are going to roughly make it to the blastocyst stage. Right. So which, day, which is which day? Day five. Day five. Yes. Yeah. And so you really want the embryos to be six cells, you know, or more eight cells on day three. Um, I have seen four cell embryos make blastocysts. And of course it does depend on if the ICSI was done, you know, at the end of the day and then the day check, day three check was done early in the day on day three, you will see four cell embryos. Um, but on day three, what happens is there's something called the embryonic genome activation. So the embryo up until day three has been nurtured by factors that were present inside the egg. On day three, the embryo's own genome has to start working. Wow. And that's where a lot of the drop-off happens between day three and the blastocyst stage. Right. So if you wanted to, if you don't mind explaining the blastocyst stage to people, that might be very helpful. Absolutely. So we check for blastocyst development on days five, six, and seven, typically. And um, what a blastocyst is, is the, the embryos that have cells that you can count, those are called cleavage stage embryos. And that means that each cell is dividing into exact copies of it. In the animal world, we can actually take embryos at that stage and split them and create twins. Wow. At that stage, they, each cell is capable of becoming another embryo. But what happens at the blastocyst stage is the embryo actually starts differentiating into two different tissue types. We have now the layer that is going to become the placenta, which is called the trophectoderm, and a, a mass of cells inside that, which is a tight ball, and that's the inner cell mass. And the inner cell mass is what will become the fetal tissues. And that's really day five. It usually starts about day five. Yeah. And we so the majority of embryos will 
grow to the blastocyst stage by day six. Some slower growing ones will, will go by day seven. And day seven is really the last day we can keep embryos, human embryos, in, in culture, in the lab. Um, and so, obviously, mm -hmm. I was going to say, so many people go day six yeah. to have the insemination. Uh, to have the transfer. I mean, I have the transfer. I apologize. I have the transfer. Yeah. Okay. Yes, to have um, a fresh embryo transfer. But nowadays, I think most practices are turning to what's called a freeze-all strategy. So typically what we're doing nowadays is, is letting the body rest after that intense stim cycle and preparing the endometrium in a separate cycle for an FET, a frozen embryo transfer. So the you know, the, anybody who's, who has taken stimula stimulation medications or is going to will know that the hormones you're getting pumped full of can really do a lot to the body. So nowadays, the preference seems to be, and, and really increased pregnancy rates come from this, to freeze all the embryos on day five, six, and seven, and then transfer them at a later time in a separate cycle where the endometrium of the uterus has been prepared separately. And now we're even starting to see that, um, you know, the typical way that people have been thinking about the endometrium is you prepare it for a set amount of days with progesterone and everybody is going to have a, um, a uterus capable of receiving an implantation with a certain course of progesterone. And what we see is with stimulation cycles, it really needs to be tailored to people's personal follicle development. Nobody would ever do a stimulation cycle without monitoring the follicles and adjusting the meds as your cycle goes on and stopping it at a certain day. And we're starting to consider that progesterone priming the same way. So there's a new test that can be done called the endometrial receptivity assay. And that is um, kind of like a mock cycle where they prepare your endometrium and they'll take a tiny painless biopsy of it on day five to see if it is receptive at that point to take an embryo or if it needs a few extra days of progesterone priming. So that's one of those kind of like advanced techniques that if, if especially for women that have had a failed transfer with a genetically normal embryo and there was seemed to be no reason um, for that embryo to not implant, um, they might want to look into this ERA testing to, to see what the genetic um, and, and the cellular uh, response to the progesterone is on day five. Could you explain that a little bit? You're giving us such a wealth of information today. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's called ERA testing, endometrial receptivity assay. And the ERA testing will, you know, they, they go in with a, a small pipel and they take a little biopsy, very painless, of the endometrium. And what they're looking for is a molecular and genetic signal from those cells that they could be receptive to having an embryo implant in them. So the process of implantation is really a lot of crosstalk between the embryo and the endometrium. So Second. a lot of infertility is you're you're making perfect embryos, but the embryo is not implanting the right way. Or when that happens, yeah, it's so hard for the intended parent 
because the egg is there, uh, the you know the embryo is there, the sperm's there. Right, you have plenty of eggs in your ovary. You're not suffering from diminished ovarian reserve. You're making beautiful embryos, and then for whatever reason, the endometrium and the embryo are just not communicating well. So that's sort of a cutting edge, you know, aspect of embryology right now that is being, you know, researched, debated in the field, and there seems to be a lot of good results. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot of movement on that in terms of the protocols coming in the next few years. I hope so. I, I hope so because it would be wonderful to be able to figure out what it was that yes. was stopping this and it would it would be a gift. Absolutely. And in general in the field of, of um, IVF and embryology, we've had a couple of these moments where we've had we've seen a huge what they call like a step change. Mm -hmm. So we were at one level when we were transferring day three embryos. But we know that a lot of day three embryos look beautiful on day three, but they're in fact arrested. They don't go on to make a blastocyst. So before we used to not, we, we didn't culture to day five, we cultured to day three. And now we changed, you know, we culture to day five now, and we can see about 50% in a lot of cases of embryos stop developing at day three. And before, those all would have been transfers, individual transfers. And you would have had those day three embryos transferred back and not known why 50% of your, of your transfers didn't work out. But now, you know, so that was one of the innovations that really allowed a giant leap in success rates in the field. Yeah, and I've kind of seen, you know, the, from my perspective, the change of the three yes. days to the five day. It, it's shifted and, and you do see better outcomes. But at what point um, do you do the, the testing, the PGA testing? So that um, is done on days five, six, and seven. The biopsies are done on day five, six, and seven. And what the biopsy does is it takes a few cells from the trophectoderm layer. Is and that it right looks like That's always a question that people have. What is? Does it hurt the um, oh, does it hurt embryos? Is there any no, no negative so impact? Each embryo is kind of as individual as a, a child itself eventually will be. And in general, we think that it, there's very little impact, but it is true some embryos just do not like to be biopsied. And then we don't find that out really until we go to thaw that embryo. It can be a long time before we find out whether that embryo will survive the biopsy and the, the freezing and the thawing procedure. Right. So a couple of other of the innovations that are happening in the field right now is currently we use a laser to clip off five or ten cells from the, the trophectoderm layer, which is the layer that will go on to become the placenta. and what what researchers and scientists are looking at now is are there non-invasive ways that we can study dna of embryos and understand whether the chromosomes are normal number or not but without hurting the embryo so it's called non-invasive biopsy and we're looking basically the embryos are growing in a culture media which is like a lot of sugars and salts and you know food for the embryo, the energy for the embryo to grow in. So we're looking at that spent culture media now, looking and seeing, are there cells that have been shed from the embryo? Can we get DNA from them? 
is it are the embryos shedding those cells because they were abnormal and they were excluding them or can we look at those cells and see if we can really gain good information about the quality of the embryo from that dna and so it's really cutting edge science actually that's happening right now as as we speak and it's just being published on it sounds so exciting you know and so important to do a lot of people want to do the testing you know and some of the doctors don't believe in the testing so it's always a question that people kind of struggle with a little bit and it's expensive so there's so many different factors that go along with that but i Absolutely. think no, go ahead i'm sorry it can be very lab specific i think that's maybe one of the problems because even as scientists in the field we we have had a hard time of saying is this effective for everybody and and i really do think that that lab to lab variation um is really preventing us from having a definitive answer for patients. Yeah, you mentioned something about the differences in the labs last time we talked. And we actually were talking about the application that you founded, the ART Compass, and how it really helps people to bring things along from place to place, giving the history and empowering the intended parent with the knowledge, as well as the team of doctors or nurses or embryologists working with them. So that variation, I think, is something that people don't necessarily have at the forefront of their mind, but the lab is really where it happens, you know, in the womb and in the lab, and it, it, they just go hand in hand. Absolutely, absolutely. And the lab is essentially the substitute for a human organ. Yes, it really so is. We you know that's one of the things that we really part of a huge part of our jobs is to make sure that the environment inside the lab is essentially the exact same as a human fallopian tube it's amazing so it, it really is so we have to monitor, like the humidity and the temperature and the ph and all of those things that it, just like it would be inside your body. Wow, that's really sick. Now, before we started, we chatted for a minute, and we don't have a lot of time left, but we chatted for a couple of minutes about when people use donor eggs and donor sperm, and how that is, because it's it's almost, um, it, it's a totally different process in many ways, right? It's, I was gonna, for people who are going, who are doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm bumpering, I apologize, but for people who are trying to conceive, and now it's not their eggs, so they don't have to go through having their eggs taken, but yet the egg still goes to you, and the sperm you're getting maybe from the father of the um, intended parents, and maybe not, maybe from somebody else, or there are opportunities maybe when you're using two sper sperms from two different donors. Absolutely. But those are all fascinating yeah. things. Does it change the process in the lab? when that happens it does in terms of the tracking of each cell and the um like labeling the dishes and that the embryos are growing in and all of the tubes of media that are used because we really cannot you know you cannot mix anything up in the, in the lab and it's very important when you're working with anonymous tissues to maintain that anonymity 
um, in the case of, of anonymous egg donors and in the case of, of sperm donors um, and, you're, and you're creating these embryos, there's a lot of FDA regulations that we need to be aware of as embryologists and who can receive those tissues, how the tissues were tested because then it becomes a, like if, if you think about it, it becomes sort of like if, if somebody's donating a kidney, right? It's that same level of you are having a tissue that was created with somebody else's cell implanted into your body. So the FDA oversees that and regulates that whole process. It's very intense um, because we have to make sure that the donors are all tested appropriately, you know, all for communicable diseases, HIV, um, you know, uh, hepatitis and, and everything um, for that tissue donation to occur. And, was and I'm also thinking in the case of um, a couple, maybe a gay couple, where they yeah. both want to donate sperm. How do you do that? Do you, do you have any understanding of which sperm is being used? Or is it just taking the fastest one? No, so we, um, we would keep them separate under all circumstances. So we have to know exactly which, we wouldn't mix them together in other words. So that, so uh, what we would do is we would make two sets of everything and one would only be for one sperm source and one would be for the other sperm source. And those embryos would be labeled differently. They would be frozen according to the source of the sperm. Right. Yeah. Okay. And ultimately, probably the sperm that would be the fastest and the one where the embryo formed would be the one that would be implanted and the others might be frozen as long as they were good. Right. That, that a lot of times that is the case where the um, the, the patients would like you to pick the best embryo, and so they will leave it up to sort of the embryologist's discretion to choose the best embryo. Right, right. My husband just walked by. Did you see that? <laughs> Could you stay in the room, please? Thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness. So anyway, well, I think that this was great information. I, I really do. And um, I appreciate it so much. I'll tell you a funny story. I don't know if people are interested or not, but I was having physical therapy at home. And so when the virus first started, I would make my husband take off his clothes when he came home. I know. And I would say, don't, you have to change your clothes when you yeah. come home. So I was on Zoom doing physical therapy and my husband walks in with nothing on and his brain froze, my poor physical therapist. <laughs> so anyway, the pleasures of doing this at home. But this, I know. This has been a wealth of information, so I really appreciate it. I'm not sure if there's anything else that you want to add before we um, before we end. You know, I, I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered the basics of, of embryo development um, over the seven days that the embryos will be under, you know, my care in the lab. And I always like to tell patients, like, I am your first babysitter. I really I am. Like, I am a of your family when I my favorite part of being an embryologist one of my favorite parts of being an embryologist is when I freeze the embryos because I I feel like I'm putting the babies to bed until their parents can come back and pick them up again and that that really is what it feels like for me like I am putting all of your babies to sleep right now in the freezer in the deep freeze you know and I love that <laughs> I, I just 
I just love that. I think that's so fabulous. Years ago, when I first started, that is the most beautiful analogy. I'm putting on the babysitter, putting just like years ago when I first started working in um, infertility, I was working with one couple, and um, he for some reason was taking the embryos to the doctor's office. He picked them up from the lab and was taking them. I'm not sure why he was doing the transport. So he went into Starbucks. And he took a picture of himself with like this cooler and his wife and he said, I'm taking the kids to Starbucks. <laughs> That's so funny. I haven't heard, thought yeah. of that story anymore. Well, you know, Lori, World Embryologist Day is coming up. It's on it, it's coming up on the um I believe it's the twenty fourth. Um it's it's the and it's the birthday of the first IVF baby ever born. Mm -hmm. And it's really a day to honor, you know, embryologists who patients, you know, that's maybe one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that I've gotten to do a lot more of these Zoom calls and, and um, live events where I can really get to meet, you know, people and, and, you know, help to shed some light on the profession of embryology. And, you know, people a lot of times would never get to talk to their embryologist otherwise, or maybe only see them very briefly for those five minutes um, right. before the retrieval. And so it really is a pleasure. It's, it's, you know, the honor and the privilege of my life really to be able to create families for people and, um, you know, have this role in the world. Well, it, you know, your love for it just exudes when you talk about it. So I, I adore it, and I'm so thrilled that you came on again to explain this, so thank you so much. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, is there a way that they can contact you? You know, we're very active on social media. The best way is to really follow, I, I, you mentioned our application that we developed. So we developed an application called ART Compass, and our Instagram handle is ArtCompassIVF. And our app really helps um, patients to stay better connected um, to their doctor and their IVF practice. It literally puts the clinic administrators, scientists, physicians, and patients on the same page inside the app. You can see images of your embryos, you can see their genetic testing status, and in the case of donor, you know, donor recipients, it can probably help you feel much more connected to what's happening in your cycle because you might never step a foot in the clinic until it's until it's time for your gestational carrier to have their transfer for example mm -hmm. so um yeah we're really really active on instagram i'm um willing to take you know questions i'm an expert on the fertility answers the med answers fertility answers platform um, and so I'm reachable there as well. Um, patients can directly, you know, just reach out on social media. It's where they're all. Great. And your your um your posts on ART Compass are fabulous because they give you so much information. So I always appreciate reading them. Oh, thank so. you so much. I have a wonderful team that helps me. We strategize each week to try to figure out what um our followers might want to hear about that week and. We try to keep things timely, relevant, educational, inspirational. And so, you know, it's my, my team, um, especially thank you to Pooja on my team for help with the uh, Instagram posts, the content oh, and the quality. Thank you. thank you so much. So if anybody has any questions, please reach out to Dr. Carol Kershaw at ART Compass. And if I can help you in a new way, please reach out to me at lauriemetz.net.